we are a product to some extent of the Reformation. The Reformation, um, if you study it thoroughly, some important things came out of it and some bad things came out of it. And we're in a sense a product of both of them. Um, the, the term that was born out of the Reformation by people like Martin Luther and John Calvin was Protestant. Um, I don't consider myself a Protestant. Um, think of the, what the word is saying, a Protestant. Um, so there were things during the, the life of the Reformers that needed to be addressed. Uh, the the government-led church, the, the Catholic um, government-formed church, which was a mixture of Constantine bringing paganism and Christianity and just saying they go together. So there is the right, it is right to take the scriptures and say that's not what the scriptures are saying. Um, Paul is growing up and, and beginning his ministry, which carried all the way to the reform where he's He's struggling with the Jews and Judaism and the law is the way to heaven. If you obey the law, you'll go to heaven. And that's not true. And Paul explains that to us. But part of the baggage that we bring as following the Reformation is that we're, we're in protest against Catholicism and we're in protest against Judaism so that we use the Bible for that purpose so that we go as far from those things as we can to take verses to say that they're as far off the truth as they can possibly be. And, and we look for verses where, to this point in an evangelical world, we're saying, all you have to do is pray a prayer and you'll go to heaven. That salvation is free. That there's nothing asked of you. The reality is that if you picked up this book and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and you read all of Paul's letters in, and no one told you what to believe or what not to believe, instead of asking the question, how can I be saved, you would ask the question, am I following Jesus? So the reality is that when you study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and when you study Paul's letters, you ask these two questions. Who is a follower of Jesus? And question number two, how do you distinguish that person? So Jesus would say it this way. If you pick up your cross and follow me, if you lay down your life and allow me to be your Lord, that's like a wise person building a house that will not be destroyed. And if you listen to me and agree with what I say, but you don't do what I say, that's like a person who builds a house on sand that's going to be destroyed. Jesus never talks about praying a prayer. Jesus never talks really about being saved. The word obedience is in the New Testament way more often than being saved. Do we have to be saved? Yes. Do we have to be born again? Yes. Does that come with an expectation of following Christ? Yes. 
So if we just push against legalism and we just push against Judaism and we just push against um, sacraments and religion and all of those things, and that's all we're doing is pushing against, Jesus says, says it this way to Pilate, the reason I came into the world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus says things like this, okay, if you believe in me, now hold to my teaching, do what I say, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus says to his disciples on the night he was betrayed, if you love each other, if you lay down your life for your brothers and sisters by following me, people will know that you follow me. So the litmus test for Christianity, according to the Bible, is a person who follows Jesus Christ with their life. So you could, you could grow up to never be a theologian and just say, okay, what, what Jesus says, that's my guidance. That's what I'm going to follow. Because Jesus paid for my sins. Jesus tells me to confess him as Lord of my life. So I will follow him. Jesus says, people who follow me will never walk in darkness, but they will have the light of the world and the light of life. Jesus says, anyone who takes my teaching and makes that their way of life is actually receiving the bread of life. They will never hunger and they will never thirst. Jesus says that people who follow me will never die. So his disciples, when we, when we go through the Gospels, we see that Jesus is teaching them how to obey Jesus. We will see that in the Sermon on the Mount today. So when we come to Romans chapter 11, we're in the third chapter in the book of Romans where Paul is distinguishing the, the Ju Jews following the law and separating it from Christ. And he is saying you can never get to heaven that way. But he's also going to tell us today that you cannot separate Christianity from Judaism. That they are married together by God. That as a Gentile, without the Jews, I don't know Jesus, who is a Jew himself. So if we put down our Protestantism and we just say, okay, what is the truth? We will see that from Adam to Revelation, it has always been those who follow God with their life. And that is what the Bible actually calls grace. So it has always been grace, Paul will tell us. He will give us the history of Judaism in chapter 11, and he will explain that nothing has ever changed from a relationship to God and man. There is more revealed, more revealed, more revealed, but it is those who say, God, this is what you say, I'm following it. It is following Jesus Christ that is the evidence of Christianity. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, let's help us to let go of someone else's truth. Help us to let go of our own truth. Help us to look at your truth, to be what you said so many times. Let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Lord, help me to be out of the way of the truth. 
Help us to see the truth, the history of faith from Genesis to Revelation. Help us to follow your Son, Jesus Christ, in a way that glorifies Him and leads others to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. In Romans chapter 11, again, this is the third chapter in the book of Romans where Paul is explaining Judaism, what they did wrong, and those who did right all the way through by following Christ. We have read at the end of Romans chapter 10 that, that the Jews end up getting hardened because they rejected Jesus, rejected Jesus, rejected Jesus. So Paul asks a question beginning in chapter 11. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means, exclamation mark. See, we, in, in the Reformation, part of what happens is you have someone like Martin Luther who who is pushing against Catholicism and he's pushing Jews and he's pushing them both out of the way so that they can never be saved. And the reality is that God wants to save them all. He wants all of them to follow his son. The truth is if I knock on the, the door of someone who is yet to know the truth and they feel me pushing them away from Christ, they have the wrong picture. Paul says, yes, the Jews thought that they could follow the law and they didn't need Jesus, they're wrong. So in the world we live in, 80% of evangelicalism says God is done with the Jews. They messed up, they sinned, now it's us. Paul says, did God reject his own people? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He says, by no means... I am an Israelite myself, and he, he's going to give us three important names in the history of faith. A descendant of Abraham, Paul is, from the tribe of Benjamin, Paul is. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. The only way that anyone is called to God is by grace. So it does mean undeserved, unearned merit that comes from God, but it is grace that comes down and says from the cross, I love you so much I died for you. It says from the cross, your, your payment has been fully made. It says from the cross, follow Jesus and you will never die. So Paul starts us off with Abraham here, the, this man who lives in an area of, of sin. Um, let's go to Genesis chapter 12 and look at the beginning of Paul's message today. Genesis chapter 12. There has been... Um, I read a book one time, A Tale of Two Cities, which 
tells from a big picture the two cities of earth that, that God acknowledges. Satan's throne on earth starts at Shinar, this city where they build the Tower of Babel, and they're trying to reach heaven. They're trying to say, we don't need you. God, we'll get there ourselves. God caused them to have different languages, and he separated them so that they would stop communicating against God, and they called that Babel. Babel became Babylon, and the throne for Satan is Babylon. If we went all the way to Revelation 17 and 18, he spends two entire chapters dealing with Babylon. So Satan's throne is there. Baal worship is born there. Every false religion in 2021 traces back to Babylon. So when they came off the ark and they exploded as people and they're covering the earth and God says, fill the earth and cover it, they all went and built a city instead, the city of Babel, the modern-day Iraq, um, this place off to the east of the Euphrates River where they did anything but worship God. They built idols and, and they built statues of gold and they gave them all of the names down through history from the names of Baal originally to Ashtoreth to Molech to all of these different gods where they would sacrifice their children to these idols. And in this territory... Shortly after the Tower of Babel, these people were called Chaldeans that lived in the area of Babel, and they're idol-worshiping, idol-making people. And Joshua 22, or 24, 14 tells us this is where Abraham is from. So Abraham is a Chaldean. He is from Ur of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were the first princes and the first leaders in Babylon. By the time Nebuchadnezzar, long after Abraham, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, takes Judah into captivity, Nebuchadnezzar is responding to his wise men who are made up of Chaldeans. We get to the book of Job, and in Job we see that he's from the land of Uz, who is the, the nephew of Abraham. And we see that in the third tragedy that comes and takes over Job's family and, and attacks him and wipes out his thing, it says the Chaldeans came. Job is living in real time with Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, and he's living in the territory near Aram, where the Arameans are, where Abraham is from. Job is literally attacked by the descendants of the same people that Abraham comes from. I say all this to realize how much grace reached into this place. This is a wicked, Baal-worshipping, idol-making, idol-selling, idol-worshipping place that Abraham is a part of. And grace reaches down in this place to see if anyone will follow God. And Abraham says, I'm listening so God calls him, we're going to begin in chapter 12 and verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household, which Joshua tells us is an idol-worshipping 
family, and I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth, including the people in this room, will be blessed through you. And this beginning of verse 4 is so critical. So Abraham went as the Lord told him. His relationship with God starts out, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. I'm going to bless all nations through you. I want you to leave everything you know and go to a place you've never been. In fact, it will never be yours, but it will be your descendants. And Abraham went. He obeyed. So when we go through the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, the second question, first question, who are the followers of Jesus Christ? Second question, how do you distinguish them? They are always distinguished by what they do. Not what they do before they meet God, what they do after they meet God. By grace, through faith, Abraham went. So Abraham leaves his wealth, he leaves his riches, he leaves the gods that his family worship. And he goes from east of the Euphrates River up to Haran, and he's making his way down to the other city which is Jerusalem. In fact, when he gets into the territory that he's unfamiliar with, Melchizedek, Genesis 14, comes to him, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He offers him bread and wine. Abraham gives him a tenth of all he has, both of those exchanges showing that this is the Son of God. He has to leave Babylon to go to Jerusalem and it's a long journey he goes up to Haran first before he makes his way to Bethel which is named by Jacob as the house of God and then he makes his way ultimately down to Jerusalem and he meets Melchizedek which means king of righteousness and king of peace he is the king of Salem according to Genesis 14 before it is Jerusalem. So he meets Abraham and he calls him out of this place 2,091 years before Jesus. Now we turn to 1 Kings in your Bible, chapter 19, and we look at Abra or Paul's second example of Elijah. First Kings chapter 19. It was easy in Paul's day. It was easy in Elijah's day to feel like nobody is believing. So we have gone from Babylon to Jerusalem. They go into Egypt, they come out a nation, they come and take over the land of Canaan, they, they build a temple, Solomon builds a temple and they worship there. Solomon immediately starts marrying women who believe other things, that worship other idols. Solomon joins them and his son is born and the nation splits in two. 
So ten of the tribes go to the northern kingdom. Elijah would have the privilege of prophesying to the northern kingdom, which would never repent. So the king of the northern kingdom at this point is the son of Omri. His name is Ahab, and Omri makes Samaria the capital of the northern kingdom, and Omri worships Baal there. So Abraham goes from Baal to Jesus, and the northern kingdom of Israel goes from Jesus back to Baal. So on Mount Carmel, Elijah has this mountaintop experience. First of all, because of their sin, the king Ahab marries a prostitute of Baal. Literally, her body, her life, her sins are given to whoever wants them in the name of Baal. So they are at the height of shaking their fist at God. We don't want you. We don't want you. So Elijah says to Ahab, it's not going to rain for three and a half years because of you. So they're hunting for Elijah and they can't find him. Finally, God says, now go back there. He goes back there and he goes up on Mount Carmel and he builds a sacrifice. They take as much water as they can. They dig a trench in and put a moat and they soak the sacrifice in water. And he says, okay, call on Baal over here. So they build another fire here. Everything is dry and they're, they're calling on God all day and they're cutting themselves and they're pleading with Baal. And then Elijah says, now God, you take this sacrifice. And in front of them, God burns the water up he burns the stones up, he burns the, the bull up, and he burns everything so there's nothing left. Fire comes down from heaven, woof, and burns it up. Then he says, because the Israelites are rallying, now take these Baal prophets and kill them, and they do. Then he says to King Ahab, now it will rain. So at least as a young boy, if you're here today, you appreciate this. He says, ride to Jezreel because it's going to start pouring. He runs. I, Elijah tucks his cloak in his clothes and he runs ahead of horses for 25 miles and outruns them. So he sees this magnificent fire. He destroys the Baal worshipers. He is supernaturally endowed to be the fastest man recorded in history. And then Jezebel, this prostitute, says um, in our story, verse, let's pick it up in verse 46 of chapter 18. The power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking in his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Ahab is in a chariot with his fastest horses. Elijah is on foot, and he runs 25 miles, basically a marathon, faster than a horse. Chapter 19 and verse 1, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel, this prostitute of Baal, sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods, the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if this time tomorrow... I do not make your life like one of them. God has done miracle, miracle, miracle. A woman on earth says, I demand you to be killed. Elijah is defeated. 
he runs. He hides. What happens is, if we drop down to verse 5, then he lay down under a bush and fell asleep. He's done. He's just going to lay there. And all at once, an angel, this is pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for your journey is too much for you. And what's going to happen here is he's going to relive with what God did with Moses. This would sink into Elijah like we cannot fully understand. Moses went up on the mountain and he got the law and he didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses asked to see God. God put him in the cleft of the rock and said, don't look until I pass you. And he could see the back of Jesus Christ as he walked away. In other words, he could see what Jesus left behind. So God is, Jesus is going to do the same thing with Elijah at the same place. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for your journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Mount Sinai is called Horeb, the mountain of God. We pick it up in verse uh, let's pick it up in verse 11 in the interest of time. Then the Lord said, Go out and stand in the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. He's going to do exactly what he did with Moses. Then a great powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And the wind there, after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, Where are you, or what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, and this is what Paul is referring to, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. He's retracing Paul's steps in a sense. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. He is saying, you're not the only one left. I am God. God cannot violate free will, but he can preserve the life of any follower of Christ. So as, as I've heard it said, a man of God walking in the will of God is immortal 
until God's work for him is finished. For Stephen, that meant a young man. For John, that meant a hundred-year-old man. The point is, John was not going to die until he finished God's work for him, as long as he was faithful to Jesus. Same thing with Elijah. Elijah says they're going to extinguish the Jews. No, they're not. Jesus says to him, I have 7,000 who have not bowed a knee to Baal. That would have been a great encouragement to Elijah because he does literally feel, he's been alone for a few years. He feels like, I'm the only one left. It's kind of like they found a man in a cave in Japan 14 years after World War II had finished because he was still hiding. That's kind of how Elijah would have felt it. It's just me. There's nobody here that believes but me. Jesus says, no, I would never allow that to happen. And that's what Paul is referring to. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. When we get... When we go through at a faster pace next week what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 11, he's going to explain to us as Gentiles that the tree is Jesus. The branches are the believers. The Jews' branches were broken off because they were unfaithful and didn't believe. You, as a Gentile, are grafted in how you can graft branches together. And he is saying that the root is the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus says to the woman at the well. The covenant that we are born again into is the covenant God made with Israel. And this is that covenant beginning in verse 31 of chapter 31. This is the new covenant that Jesus refers to when, when Jesus said, this is a new covenant in my blood, and he holds up the blood, he is talking about this covenant this covenant had to be purchased with blood, the blood of the perfect high priest of perfect righteousness, Jesus Christ. Everything that Moses taught was a symbol pointing to this covenant. The first covenant was the covenant of the law, which Moses said will never save you. It points you to the one who will. They came to John the Baptist. Well, are you the Messiah? No, but I'll point you to the one who will. And this is the covenant that saves forever. Verse 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord. He's looking ahead to Jesus coming. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the, east, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. That last statement there is repeated multiple times throughout the New Testament. I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. How do you do that? Follow Jesus. The one who makes it possible. 
So in 2021, Judaism is thrown out. No, it's not thrown out. The law is thrown out. No, it's not thrown out. The culmination of the law has come. His name is Jesus Christ. So what about Israel? Jeremiah goes on. Verse 35. This is what the Lord says, He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that the waves roar. The Lord Almighty, El Shaddai, is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below searched out, will I reject the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. Jeremiah is saying what Paul says 700 years later. Has God rejected the Jews? No, he hasn't. Who is God after? Everyone. How is God after them? Through Israel to be a witness for God, they rejected him. I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. The church age where the, the second part of Abraham's prophecy comes through, all nations will be blessed through you. What will that mean? It means that he will be our God and we will be his people. He will forgive our wickedness and remember our sins no more if we follow his son. Turn in your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 5. You say, Jim, that's Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament. That is, Paul and Jesus' preaching Bible was the Old Testament. The plan has never changed. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus Christ, including the law which Paul is trying to explain to us. So Paul is explaining two things again in Romans 11. Number one, if you think you can work your way to heaven, you're wrong. And that's what the Jews believed. Number two, if you think God is done with the Jews, you're wrong. Jesus himself is from the Jews. So Paul says, I'm from Abraham. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Abraham is called out of this wicked area of the world. His son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, and his great-grandson Joseph, the chosen wife of Jacob, was Rachel. If you follow through the Old Testament, Joseph, who is the second to the last born, is elevated to the top as the firstborn because Rachel was the choice of God and Joseph is the firstborn of Rachel. So when the Jews leave Egypt and they go into the promised land, who leads them? Joshua. Who's he a descendant of? Joseph. So in Romans, who leads us into the promised land? Paul, who is a descendant of Benjamin. The two sons of Rachel are Joseph and Benjamin. So Paul is saying, I'm from Abraham and I'm from Benjamin and I'm called to bring you the gospel. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is beginning his preaching ministry. It is kingdom focused and these are the things that he taught his disciples. 
he taught them, like the Sermon on the Mount begins, um, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Teach them how to follow Christ. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, he said before this moment. We drop down to verse 17. To those who think the law is done, it's a bad thing, it was, it was corrupted. No, the law was good. It was meant to lead us to Christ. So Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will be by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Obey your father and mother is never a bad thing. The law is perfect. The issue that we have is there's only one person who could follow it, and that's Jesus. So the righteousness of Christ becomes necessary to every human being. But the law, Jesus didn't come to say, okay, we're done with the law. He came to say, the law was meant to point you to me. Reading on verse 19, Therefore, if anyone sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, what does Jesus say to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in Matthew 23? He says you're like whitewashed tombs. You're religious. You do the acts of the law, but on the inside, Jesus says, you're full of dead men's bones and hypocrisy. By surpassing the law that the Pharisees used it for, the Pharisees used it to make money. They used it to become important. They made it religion. Jesus says, the law is a good thing, and if you follow Christ, you will surpass external. You must confess him with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart. Not in your rituals, not in your Christianity, but in your following Christ. If Christianity was like the Pharisees, we would, we would have rituals and different things that we would do. We would go home and feel cleansed. Wrong. The Christianity of the Bible is, Paul says it this way, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Jesus simply says, follow me. Religion is about actions created by people, God's way, or man's way to God. Relationship is what God is about. It is God's way for me to God. So he says to Adam, Adam, as he's walking alongside him, what happened today? God comes down with grace to Adam after Adam has done the only command he told him not to do. He comes down to Abraham in this 
this filth that he is living in and says, Abraham, will you just follow me? And in verse 4 of Genesis 12, Abraham went. Jesus always says in the Bible that our response to him will lead to the actions he's planned in advance for us to do. So in pushing against legalism and Judaism and whatever ism there is, almost every evangelical knows these verses. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. Absolutely true. The purpose of those verses is in the next verse. So he says that, Paul writes, and then he says, for, in other words, this is true for this purpose. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the works he planned in advance for us to do. That's the purpose of God. The way to God is grace through faith. He doesn't call us to salvation. He calls us through salvation. So if I'm following Jesus Christ with my life, that's all I really need to know. Who is your Lord? Jesus is. Who decides how you live? Jesus does. Who is the only way, truth, and life? Jesus is. It's about a person. It's about a relationship. And Paul is telling us today that back from Abraham, Elijah, the law, to us, it has always been the same. Turn to Galatians chapter 3, Paul's first letter. What happened at the Reformation, and it wasn't all bad and it wasn't all good, Martin Luther is reading for himself the book of Galatians where Paul is strenuously saying the law saves no one, the law leads to Christ who saves everyone. So Martin Luther said this is not what we are teaching in the church. This is the truth. But he was pushing so hard against the truths that 2,000 years later, we're still using the verses that he used to push against legalism and to push against Judaism and to push against Catholicism, and we, we don't see the truth as, of, as a whole. So John 3.16 resonates. It's true. It's important. It's absolute. Luke 3.16 is just as important. But we don't know Luke 3.16 because it doesn't defend our position as well. In Luke 3.16, John the Baptist says, I'm not the one. The one who is coming after me is greater than I am, and he's more powerful than I am. I baptize you with water. He baptizes you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. One of the things we've done in evangelicalism is um, in, there are religions based on the Holy Spirit which are misled, but we push so hard against them that the power of the Holy Spirit is not visible in the evangelical church. John says, the Baptist, 
he will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. And Paul talks about that all throughout his letters, but we want to simplify it to praying a prayer, to going to the right denomination, and we lose sight of the truth as a whole. So in that letter of Galatians, these are letters, verses that are also there. In chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. That's true. The truth is, if the law is my way to heaven, I fail. No matter how good I think I am, James says, disobey it once, failure. So the curse that was on me because I didn't obey the law, Jesus put on him on the cross. Look at the next verse, verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. When the Spirit came to people in Acts chapter 2, there's a foundation of the church being led. Every time in the book of Acts it goes to a new person, the Holy Spirit becomes visible. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 and 7, verse 7, every person in the church has been given a personal manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So it is wrong to say the Holy Spirit's going to slay me, he's going to make me fall down, he's going to make me do these things, but we push against that so hard that the manifestation of the Spirit becomes covered up. Paul says here that the promise of Abraham will be proven by the person of the Holy Spirit and his activity through you. So fruit from the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control are powerfully demonstrated if we follow Christ. And we've got to be careful not to push against worshiping the Holy Spirit, which is wrong, and we have to accept that the Holy Spirit, Christ in me, is in the person of the Holy Spirit. Turn to chapter 6 in Galatians as long as we're there. Verse 14. Paul, who's of the descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin, a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee, who realized when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus that it's it's about a person named Jesus. Verse 14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So first of all, Paul uses this language always. Jesus says, Unless a kernel of wheat dies, it can't produce. Paul says it this way, if you're connected to his crucifixion by dying to the world, then you're connected to his resurrection, which is guaranteed. Here he says, may I boast in nothing except of what I've received through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May that be my only hope, verse 15, 
neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation, born again. Verse 16, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. The Israel of God is believing Jews. That's the only time in the Bible Paul uses this phrase. The Israel of God. In his first letter, in the letter of Galatians, he is telling us that we enter into the Israel of God. We join messianics, which is Messiah followers, as Christians, Christ followers. Messiah, Christ. Messiah, Hebrew. Christ, Greek. So we are called Christians. Christians were not called Christians until Acts chapter 11, where in Antioch, uh, a Gentile town in Syria, they called themselves Christ followers. Jews, like Paul, is a messianic. He is a person who believes in the Messiah. We are a person who believes in Christ. Same thing, two different languages. And he says the Israel of God, in concluding his first letter, now go to Ephesians What if Martin Luther was reading Ephesians when the Reformation happened? Because Ephesians is the most extensive picture of the body of Christ in the Bible. Martin Luther was known as an anti-Semite and an anti-Catholic, a Protestant. What if he understood that they're all together if they believe in Jesus Christ. Not Judaism, but Jews. Not Catholicism, but followers of Christ. So he used Galatians to push them both out of the picture and push them out of his church. The reality is that we're sent to win them for Christ. Remember last week, 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jew I become like a Jew. To the one having the law, I'll meet you there, Paul says. To the Gentile not having the law, I'll meet you there. To the weak, I'll become weak. I'll become all things to all people that I might save some. That's what Martin Luther missed. So in Ephesians, the, where the body of Christ is written in a letter, we already read, but let's look at verses 8 through 10. Here's the gospel given in Ephesians. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. What's our only boast? Verse 14 of Galatians 6, Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse um, 10, 4, in other words, this is what eight, verse 8 and verse 9 are for. This is the purpose of God, to be God's work, handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do, born again, created to serve, endowed with power to serve Christ. What if Martin Luther would have started there and we could have started there and just said, okay, that's the gospel. The mode, grace through faith. 
The purpose, God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do the works he planned in advance for us to do. So what's the gospel? To do what God planned for me to do in following Jesus Christ. First order of business. Chapter 2, the gospel. First order of business. Chapter 3, how do I do that? Well, first, understand what the church is. This is the foundation of the church. Chapter 3 and verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the minister of Christ, prisoner of Christ Jesus, that's a picture of a Christ follower, a prisoner, meaning not chained, not shackles, he's not dragging me, but I surrender everything. A prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. He's writing to Gentiles, and he's going to explain the promise given to Abraham. Surely you have heard about my administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery. So mystery, Paul explains in multiple places. We'll see it at the end of Romans. A mystery is something that was always true, but it's now revealed. He is revealing the mystery of Genesis 12 and verse 3. No one knew this before Paul. Verse 4, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is, was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. That is the primary mystery in the New Testament. That is the primary statement from heaven to this time period that is the church. What is the church? It is that Jews and Gentiles would come together and form one body under Christ Jesus. So first act of Business is the business is create God's handiwork in Christ Jesus to do the good works he planned in advance for us to do. What do I do now? First of all, here's the body. Jews, Gentiles, one body in Christ Jesus. So Galatians 3.28, same thing. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female. We are all one body in Christ Jesus. Turn to... Um, Let's read on, actually, verse 7. I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. That's the Holy Spirit in Paul. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles, Paul the Jew, preaching to the Gentiles, the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden who, in God who created all things, his intent, this is the primary action, is to understand verse 6, the purpose of verse 6, verse 10. His intent is that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Who's he talking about? Demons. Satan. False gods. 
Babylonians, pagan worship. If Jews and Gentiles would come together the way God calls them to, the world would know the manifold wisdom of God. It would become obvious. And it would become obvious first to everyone in the spiritual realms. Let's finish in Romans chapter 15. gospel is so much bigger than a prayer it is so extensive and so inclusive and so perfectly laid out by God to save as many as possible chapter 15 and verse 7 of Romans accept one another who's this mean now it means me and you and it means Jew and Gentile as you'll see as we read on Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promise made to the patriarchs, like Abraham, might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, these are all going to be from the Old Testament. From Psalm 18, 49, Paul says, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Verse 10, your, these verses are probably all noted at the bottom of your page. Um, verse 10, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, Psalm 117 and verse 1, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. Genesis 12, 3 is painting that picture. Verse 12, Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ. The root of Jesse, um, David's father. The root of David he is called elsewhere. The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. So he's saying he becomes a servant to the Jews so that the Jews will worship him, so the Gentiles will see their worship and they will say, we want to worship him also. He also foreknew the Jews, we read today. He knows that only the remnant will be faithful. So in order for the gospel to get to Mendota, Illinois, Paul has to be stopped on the road to Damascus, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin, to, to make plain, Ephesians 3, the mystery of the gospel to us, that it was always God's plan, Genesis 12, 3, to reach everyone. And his way of reaching the most possible is to begin with the Jews. And in that line of Judaism would come the root of Jesse. Look at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
the power of the Holy Spirit shouldn't scare us and it should be a part of us. If I am faithful enough in following Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will become visible to the people around me. So again, if we step back, not from a reformation, just looking at the gospel, God's plan is that we follow Christ. That's all Jesus talks about. That's all Paul really talks about, but we make it about who can be saved. Salvation is essential on the path to following Christ. Both Paul and Jesus say how to distinguish is their love for each other, love one another we just read, and their love for God. If we do that, the Holy Spirit makes it evident. How do I become patient? I pray really hard for patience. No. I follow Jesus Christ and he changes me. How do I become more loving? I follow Jesus Christ and he changes me. Paul says here in Romans 15 that if you allow him to change you enough, the power of the Holy Spirit will become evident to people around you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to grow every moment of every day in understanding your truth more. Not with a goal of having more information, but with a goal of following your Son. Help us to be faithful, as Paul says, that the just will live by their faithfulness. Help that to be us. So that people who are lost, people who are religious, people who are clinging to a denomination can understand that the love of Christ through us can make the, the manifold wisdom of God clear. Make it simple. What do I need to do? Follow Jesus Christ. Thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen.